All right. We're supposed to start about 7.15, and this is pretty close, so why don't we begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time together this evening. We pray that you'll guide our thoughts, that we might think your thoughts after you as we look into the scripture, into the book of Acts. Give us understanding. Pray the Holy Spirit will enlighten our minds and hearts and give us a spirit of obedience as we see areas in our own lives that need conforming to the image of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. So we've got a quiz, the first thing. A quiz. But I'll ask you the questions, okay? All right. So here it is. Number one. The book of Acts was originally the second part of the Gospel of John. True or false? False. False. Originally part of the Gospel of Luke or two-part, right? Two. The earliest date for the writing of Acts is A.D. 74. False. 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 Earlier than that, 62, Gary says, because it takes us up to the second year of Paul's imprisonment, right? So it has to be written at that time or later, which is about A.D. 62, right? So Luke was a physician. Theophilus was probably Luke's father. Probably not. We don't know who he was exactly. Calls him uh, most excellent, you know, in the King James. Could be an official of some time, maybe a Roman official, maybe his patron, maybe. Five, whenever we read that the church, whatever we read that the church did in the book of Acts should be done by churches today. Not necessarily, right? This is narrative. And so we're seeing examples of what the early church did, and we're trying to discern principles that may apply to us, but... We want to test those with what the direct teaching of the apostles is in the epistles, right? And see what the, see what they say exactly. Luke's use of medical language is absolute proof that the author was a physician. I didn't say that, did I? I said it could be, but I can use the word scalpel or suture or something. So just because Luke uses a medical term doesn't prove, but it certainly would go along with that, wouldn't it? Seven, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that... Jesus mentions in Acts 1 5 took first took took place first on the day of Pentecost. And we said that yes last time. We tried to show that. Alright. Let's see uh, what we did last time. We uh, all, we're on about page uh, page uh, page 5 about. Let's review here for a moment. Uh, we went over the title last time and we said that um, it was probably part of the two-part work, Luke Acts. And we said that we get that from the introduction to Acts where he says in my former book and then we read about that in Luke 1, 1 through 4 where there's the real introduction to Luke Acts there. And then we talked about the importance of, uh, of this book. Change this uh, look here a second. We talked about the importance of Luke Acts, and we said it's important because it sort of bridges the gap between the Gospels and the Epistles. That's one reason it's very important. It tells us. Uh, 
about uh, the conversion of the Apostle Paul, what happened to the Apostles like Peter and so forth after the death and resurrection of Christ. We talked about the authorship. We said, of course, it was Luke, who is called a doctor or a physician by Paul, Colossians 2.14. He traveled with the Apostle Paul, remember we said. Um, We talked about those we sections beginning in Acts 16, you remember, where the author says, we, when the man of Macedonia gave that call, the author says, we determined that we should go over and help that man of Macedonia and Philippi. And then we started looking at the actual uh, analysis of the book itself on page number four. And uh, we said that verses one through five are a resumptive preface, which just means it resumes the preface material that we saw in Luke one, one through four. And... uh, We talked about uh, the Jesus talks about the convincing proofs after he had, after his suffering presented himself to them gave convincing proofs he appeared to them over a period of forty days and so we said that when Jesus was resurrected he appeared to it appears to be Christians only apparently Jesus was not around all the time, like he was during his earthly ministry. He made appearances. Uh, it, uh, for instance, uh, uh, let's see here. I was thinking about Acts 10, Acts 10, 41. This is uh, Peter at the house of Cornelius, and he says in Acts 10, 41, he's talking about Jesus here. He says, they killed him, hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. Verse 41, he was not seen by all the people. So it wasn't like he was walking around Galilee like he did during his ministry on earth. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So Jesus appeared to these people, many people. Remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 500 people at one time he made an appearance to. So he appeared at various intervals over this period of 40 days. And the ascension is the end of that uh, 40-day period. Uh, He told them, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait, page 5, for the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And we said, Peter says in Acts chapter 11 that we'll get to that this baptism with the Holy Spirit, that what happened to Cornelius, this baptism with the Holy Spirit, he says, this is what happened on the day of Pentecost. Pretty much identifies it very clearly. So we're in Jerusalem. Let's look at Jerusalem. I asked last week, nobody's been to Jerusalem, but I see the bigs are here, so they... Been a few times. <laughs> so let's look at Jerusalem a little bit and get our bearings. So we're looking from the west. We're looking from the west. So, you know, if we look at a map, as you see of Israel here, of New Testament times, here's Jerusalem right here. And so we're over here in this picture. We're over here looking in this direction. I'm looking, we're west looking east. I'm sorry. 
we're west looking east. And you'll see in that picture, we can see the sort of the Dead Sea over here as we're looking from Jerusalem. So here's Jerusalem. Let's look at that picture again. So here's Jerusalem. Here's modern, the modern city is, is here to the west, over here. You see the taller buildings here. And here's the old city. There's the Dome of the Rock. We'll see that more in a moment. The Judean wilderness out here, the Dead Sea over here. So I'm just giving you a, a big picture there of Jerusalem. So let's look at, at Jerusalem, mainly the old city. Here's the old city, mainly here, with the present-day walls. Now Jerusalem has, or had at one time, three distinct valleys. Three distinct valleys. Two of them are still clearly visible today. The Kidron Valley is here. This is on the east side of the Temple Mount. You see that? Can you see that there? And the Mount of Olives is up here. Now, you, you can't see the elevations here. This is a cemetery, a Jewish cemetery up here. There's a hotel right here. And the Mount of Olives runs right there. And actually, this is pretty steep. You'll see in a picture in a moment. It's, it's a deep valley right there. And uh, so this is the Kidron Valley. And it runs around here and connects with the Hinnon Valley. It runs around here to the south of Jerusalem and connects to the Hinnon Valley. So they connect the Valley of Hinnon down here and then along on the western side there. So that's the second valley. There's also a central valley here. Now, it's, it's, it's runs right up through here. It did at one time, but it's been pretty much covered in today. So there's no, no real valley there today. Sometimes it's called the Tyropian Valley. Tyropian Valley, Tyropian Valley. If you've seen maps and stuff, you'll see the Tyropian Valley here, references to that. So there was a valley that ran right up here, right here by the Temple Mount here, called the Central Valley. Here's how it kind of looks. So here's the Tyropian Valley here. Here's the Temple Mount with the Dome of the Rock there today. And here is uh, the Central, the Caropia Valley. You see how they show it's kind of filled in the Caropia Valley, the Central Valley. There's no real valley there today at all. And then here is the Western part, or the Western Hill. So here is, uh, here is the Kidron Valley, the Central Valley, and the Valakinan Valley is over here on that part of this Western Hill. So we're looking at that again, at those three valleys here. You can see the present walls of Jerusalem. Now in Jesus' day, this wall would have come down here and come around here. It would have been, these are different walls. These walls mainly go back to uh, Arab ruler, Suleiman the Magnificent, and so forth, 16th century. They've been torn, torn up, built up, and so forth time and time again. So... They're not the present walls. So here we're looking, we're looking from, here's the Mount of Olives right here. So we're at the south end of the Mount of Olives. We got too much light, can you see that? Can you see it? Okay. And you see the Kidron Valley here, and the Hinnon Valley, and modern Jerusalem down here. Now, there you see another view, the Kidron Valley. And the central valley runs up through here. 
As I say, that's been covered over. Now, this area right here was the original city of Jerusalem, the city of David. This is the original Mount Zion right here. So when the Old Testament talks about Mount Zion, it's that area right there. Now, it's very confusing because um, when we look when we look at the... Uh, go back to... I'll have to come back later. But today, you can see this hill over here is actually a little taller, the western part of Jerusalem. See how that's taller? If you look at a map of Jerusalem today, this area over here is called Mount Zion. So if you get a modern map of Jerusalem, if you go to Jerusalem and get a map, it'll say Zion, Mount Zion there. And the reason for that is because... When Byzantine Christians around the 500, 600 came to Jerusalem and were trying to figure out where the, some of the sites were, they figured that Mount Zion, where David built his city, would be the highest hill. And so they, they incorrectly called this Mount Zion, this western hill, Mount Zion, but that's not the Old Testament Mount Zion. Mount Zion is this area right here. This is where David, then he purchased this here, here, remember this area here, and Solomon built the temple right here, to the north of that. But this is the original Old Testament Mount Zion. There's a valley that ran up here, the Pool of Sloan is down here, and so forth. They've done a lot of archaeology along here. They've recently discovered a street along here, and all kinds of structures along here. A lot of this you can't do anything. This is all Arab down here, so nothing can be done, but they've a lot of excavations down here. But originally, the walls of Jerusalem came all the way down here and covered this lower part down here. Now, see, there is the Kidron Valley. So we talked about, remember that Kidron Valley that's to the east of the Temple Mount there? Here's the Kidron Valley. You can see how deep that is. Here's the Jewish cemetery. Here's the hotel on top, and Mount of Olives runs along here. So it's pretty steep. And if you try to walk from the Temple Mount down here and up, it's a little, have you ever done that? Have you ever walked that? It's it's a, it's it's like you feel like you're just going to fall down almost. It's so steep try, trying to walk. There's a road you can go up and down here. So it's pretty steep. So there, there's the Kidron Valley you just saw. There's the Mount of Olives. Um, let's see what slide that is there. Okay. Uh, here is the Temple Mount from the south. Now, we call it the Temple Mount. The Arabs deny that there ever was a Jewish temple on that mount. They deny it absolutely and totally. And so... Here's the original southern entrance to the temple. This is the way the Jews would have come into the temple, mainly from the south. There were other entrances. Here's the Alaska Mosque, and here's the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock is not a mosque, remember? These buildings, the Alaska Mosque here, here's a mosque, and the Dome of the Rock were built in the late 600s by Arabs, Muslims who conquered Jerusalem. Remember then the Crusades came, the Crusaders reconquered back and forth and so forth. And the mosque there commemorates supposedly where Muhammad, you know, made his journey to heaven. It's supposed to be the third most holiest site in the Muslim world. 
he's supposed to have a journey from heaven from Jerusalem uh, directly to heaven with the angel Gabriel there and there's a mosque here and but the Jews control Jerusalem the Muslims really can control this temple mount it's under the direction of Jordan Jordan technically has control of that temple mount and, and so you can't go there and Jews can't go there and worship or pray or anything like that when I was there we went there but it felt like well, there were people watching us the whole time they, have you been on the temple mount you, you're being, you felt like you're being watched don't you it's, not, it's an uncomfortable place to be in a way it's not <laughs> it's not uh, well, so it's there's people watching and everything and you have to go up through a special uh, uh, bridge right there on the western wall right there and so forth so there's the Temple Mount from the south. So this was this would have been where the original where the temple was, original Solomon's temple, and then um, Herod enlarged the temple. This is uh, the Temple Mount, and Herod the Great made it about twice the size it originally was. So it's much larger than it was during Solomon's time. He, he built it out. He built it out in every direction except to the east. He couldn't go any further east because the Kidron Valley. So the Temple Mount, he went south, he went west, he went north, and kind of doubled the sides of the Esplanade. So quite large there. So there's the Temple Mount again. We're looking from the southwest. So uh, south this way, here's the Mount of Olives, and we're looking down the southwest. Here is the the old city. Um, we're looking. We're looking from the west here. I'm sorry, I get my bearings here. Yeah, we're looking from the west. Here's where I stayed when I was in Jerusalem. The YMCA hotel. Here. <laughs> it wasn't the greatest place. <laughs> Did you ever go there? You don't want to go there. <laughs> Across the street is the King David, and that's where the President of the United States stays. He goes, he stays, he stays at the King David. We stayed at the YMCA Hotel when I was there. But there you're looking from the west, you're looking towards the east. Uh, here we're looking uh, from the north now, from the north. So the city of David is down here, to the south, to the south. We're North. Um, there's the garden tomb. If you ever go, and you go to the garden tomb. There's the Kidron Valley there. There's the north. Yeah. So there we're looking at the uh, at the from the north. So a while ago we were looking at the south and we saw the Alaska Mosque there. And it's all done to the rock. Here's the western wall where the Jews pray. That's kind of the place where they go. And over the years, probably since you've been going, they've enlarged that, built that up. Have you been there recently? Not recently. But they've enlarged that, made it bigger, put in restrooms and everything around here. And here's the Fortress Antonio. We'll eventually get to this. Not this semester, but next semester, where Paul was probably taken 
when he was taken prisoner in Jerusalem, there was a fortress there where the Romans had their soldiers on the north uh, west corner of the Temple Mount. Here's from the east, so we're looking from the Mount of Olives down to the dome of the rock there. You can't miss it. So here's the, the gate here, the western gate, eastern gate. So uh, we'll talk about that because Jesus is supposed to return to the Mount of Olives, go down the Mount of Olives, come into the gate, probably this gate right here or something close to it. Here's that Fortress Antonia on the on the temple, on the northwest uh, side of the temple. This is where the Romans would have had their soldiers. They can look down on the Temple Mount. So, there's a question about exactly where was that Old Testament temple. It's a lot of speculation on that, but I think it's right there where the Dome of the Rock was, most likely. All the evidence points to right there where they, the Dome of the Rock. That, that's supposed to be the site where Abraham... Uh, sacrificed Isaac and so forth. It might be. It might be. There's some evidence of that. There's from the east. Looking in the southeast. Kind of a close-up here. So here's that southern wall. This was the main entrance. I'll show you a better picture of that. This is the main entrance where the Jews would have gone into the temple. Mainly. You could, there's other entrances, but... There were uh, a lot of gates there, steps. You can still walk on those steps today. Go there to the south and walk on those steps. Here's the south view. Again, the city of David down here, Mount Zion, the Old Testament would call it. And there you can see it particularly here. There's a natural spring right here, Gihon Spring. And... Uh, Hezekiah built a, a tunnel. Has they ever walked through Hezekiah's tunnel? You don't. You, I don't think so. Okay. Well, I remember when Hezekiah was when the Jerusalem was being sieged, he built a he built a water tunnel from Gihon Spring over here at the Pool of Siloam, Siloam here, and uh, you can actually walk through there. The water is about up to your knees and so forth. And if you're foolish enough, like we were. That. Some there's some question about where the tomb of David is. If you go there today, they'll take you to the where the upper room was, and they said the tomb of David there. Clearly, it wasn't there. Probably in, in the city here. Here's the gates. There was a triple gate here and a double gate over here that. Uh, Originally, and they walked up these steps to uh, passages that opened up here. So you had an interior here and then steps coming up to the Temple Mount here. Originally, you can kind of see that there. They're doing a tremendous amount of excavating there, and, and, and all kinds of things are going on there. There's the Garden of Gethsemane over here, right here up on the bank of the, of the Mount of Olives. Bottom of the Mount of Olives. Here's the Western Wall that you see today when you see Jews praying at that Western Wall close to the Temple. There's that Western Wall. Here's some. Here's a. Here is a uh, model of Jerusalem. There's a nice model of Jerusalem 
uh, used to be at a place called the Holy Land Hotel. Did y'all go to the Holy Land Hotel and see? Anyway, there was there was a there was a model at this place called the Holy Land Hotel. Yeah, and you would go there and, and they would take you around. It's a complete model. They moved it to the Israel Museum now, so it's moved there. But this is a this is a model of what the Temple Mount probably looked like. Here's the temple. This is probably uh, this is the royal stoa where probably the uh, uh, the uh, the uh, Sanhedrin met most likely. This we'll talk about all this later. This is Solomon's colonnade along here, and here is the western wall. And there you can see at the Feast of Tabernacles the Jews down there praying. So if you go to Jerusalem, you'll You'll go here and you'll, you'll see, you go up and look at the bricks, you'll see pieces of paper stuck in the bricks and things like that. Um, here is a map of uh, Jerusalem as it would have looked in New Testament times. Here's that city of David down here. Down here, and here's that valley. Here's the upper city. And this is the lower city, but this is Mount Zion. So the, the, the walls would have come all the way down here. The walls today, they come right here. So you don't, it's not walled in like it was then. So this was all walled in here. This upper city is what I said. If you look at maps, you go online, you look at Mount Zion, they'll say this is Mount Zion because it was misidentified by pilgrims in the Byzantine era. And uh, so this is... This orange part is what it looked like in Jesus' day and Paul's day. This was later added. A third wall over here is uh, is, was added later after after Paul's time. All right, let's look back at our notes here, and uh, we're looking at page five. This I hope this will help us a little bit as we think about Jerusalem. I'll show you some more pictures later on, but sometimes it's helped to kind of get the geography and get an idea of what these places look like. So we're looking at the mandate to witness here in verse 6. They gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you the time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, no. Um, This is, uh, remember, Jesus had taught the establishment of a literal kingdom. Remember that in Matthew? He comes on the scene like, say, Matthew 4.17, Jesus says, uh, from this, from the, uh, Matthew says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven. Matthew uses kingdom of heaven rather than kingdom of God has come, has come near. So Jesus is preaching uh, a literal kingdom that the Jews rejected, remember in the Gospels. They rejected him, they rejected the king. And that kingdom has been postponed until the millennial kingdom when Jesus returns and so forth. Uh, but Jesus says, uh, no, that's uh, not for you to know, verse 7. That's coming in the future. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be by witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, witnesses, of course, is an important term. It occurs about 39 times in various forms. And so these people are to be witnesses because there weren't any video cameras. There weren't any steel cameras, were there? So nobody could take a picture of Jesus. Nobody could take a picture of the resurrected Jesus. 
these people were to be witnesses of what they had seen. They had walked with Jesus, talked with him, what he had taught. They're, they're to be witnesses to others of all that Jesus has said and done and so forth, and his resurrection and so on. And notice what Jesus says here. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, which will be the day of Pentecost, and you will be my witnesses. Notice those, I mentioned those future tenses. You will receive power and you will be my witnesses. What do you, what do you think about those future tenses there? Are those future tenses predictions or are they commands? Think about the future tense. It's the same in Greek as it is in English. The future tense is sometimes a prediction, you know. That is, I will be at church on Sunday, Lord willing. That's a prediction. But if you say to your child, you will clean up your room before you go out, that's not a prediction, that's a command, isn't it? So what do we have here? You will receive power and you will be my witnesses. What do you think is going on here? Hmm? A command? The, the first one is a command. You will receive power. That's a command. That's, no, that's a prediction. That's a prediction. You will, and you will be my witness is a command. Okay. You sure about that? That's what I think. <laughs> okay. Well, you've got a prediction, and then you've got a command. Some people would say that, well, you've got a prediction first, right? You will be my witnesses. Jesus is predicting. You'll be my witnesses. This is what this is what will be. Uh, I'm sorry, you will receive power. That's that's the prediction. You will receive power on the day of Pentecost. Some would say, well, if the first one's a prediction, the second one's a prediction. You see what I'm saying? They might say the first are prediction and the second prediction. But our brother had it right here in the sense that just because one is a prediction doesn't mean the other is a prediction. You can have a prediction in the command. For instance, you could look at a verse in Luke, like Luke chapter 3, Luke chapter 1 and verse 31, where in the same verse we have exactly the same thing. We have a prediction, but then we have a command. Luke 1, 31. I think you would agree. It says, uh, this is Mary. The angel is speaking to Mary. It says, don't be afraid. You found favor with God. Luke 1, 31. You will conceive birth. And you will conceive and give birth to a son. There's one future tense. You will conceive and give birth. That's a prediction, isn't it? And then the angel says, and you are to call him Jesus. Now, the NIV's done it for us, but it actually is the same tense. And you will call his name Jesus. That's not a prediction. That's a command. You are to call him Jesus, isn't it? So you've got a prediction and a command. So you can have a prediction and then a command, and most people think that's what we have here in Acts chapter 1, is we have a prediction that you will be my witnesses, and a command. I mean, you will receive power, and then a command, be my witnesses. Well, then we have the ascension, verses 9 through 11. This is the end of his post-resurrection appearances. Jesus is taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. These men dressed in white are, of course, angels, aren't they? Dressed in white. 
In fact, uh, in Luke 24, they're called men, and then they're called angels. So these are angels. And it says, Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So there the angels are saying Jesus will return for a, he'll have a second coming, won't he? A second advent, it's sometimes called. The second advent, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that second advent, he will come back to the earth and he will actually come in the cloud, just as they say. And, and of course, the Gospels talk about this quite a bit. This same Jesus will come back. You have seen him go into heaven, just as he went into the clouds. Uh, all kinds of Old Testament texts talk about this. Remember Daniel chapter 7, that prophetic passage, Daniel seven thirteen. Uh, this is the vision, Daniel's vision of the four beasts in Daniel 7.13. And he says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. So there's kind of the first prediction of the coming of the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven. And the gospels pick up on that. They use that same language. Jesus uses that same language to describe you know, his coming again and so forth. Like Matthew 24, verse 30, Jesus is speaking here on the uh, in Matthew 24. And he's talking about the end times, what's going to happen at the end. He's giving that great discourse here, talking about the destruction of the temple, the end of times, and so forth. He says, verse 30, Matthew 20, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So Jesus is coming back, and according to Old Testament prophecy, he's coming right back to the Mount of Olives where he left. Zechariah 14.4. Zechariah 14.4. Here's Zechariah prophesying, A day of the Lord is coming. Jerusalem, and so forth. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem. Then the Lord will go out and so forth. Verse 4, on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half of the mountain moving south. So... Uh, we talked about the Mount of Olives. Here's the Mount of Olives here. Here's the, here's the Kidron Valley down here. Here's that Mount of Olives. This is the southern end of it, and it runs north here. It runs up north this way. And so Jesus is going to come down somewhere on the Mount of Olives and split that mountain in two, right there, north to south, right there in two on the Mount of Olives. Kind of, kind of labeled the, some of the stuff here. There's the Seven Arches Hotel there. And kind of runs up this way. Here is, uh, so here's Bethany down here. Remember uh, Mary and Martha, Bethany? So what you had to do if you were going to Bethany, you had to walk from Jerusalem up. Usually you walked over the Mount of Olives and then down, back down to Bethany here. 
kind of a little hard to see there. All right. Let's look at verse 12, then, the full complement of the apostles. So we're talking about these introductory matters here before we actually get into the narrative of the book of Acts, a lot of the narrative. And some of these things are foundational, like the mandate to witness. They have a mandate to be witnesses about what they've seen and heard from Jesus and so forth, his ascension, the coming of the Spirit. But there's one other problem, and that is there are no longer 12 apostles. Judas, remember, has betrayed Christ, and he is dead. He's hanged himself, and so he's not around. And this creates a problem. Uh, There is a need for a 12th apostle. So, uh, verse 12, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. Now, as I say here, that's about 2,000 cubits, or about 3,000 feet, so... To go from the Mount of Olives down to Jerusalem, that's about as far as you were allowed to walk without breaking the Sabbath. Remember, the Sabbath had various rules. You weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. Now, the the, the Old Testament doesn't say anything about a Sabbath day's walk. It doesn't say. It just says you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath and so forth. So, therefore, you're not the the rabbis uh, determine you're only supposed to travel so far. And they determined the distance at 2,000 cubits. I mentioned the Mishnah here. What's the Mishnah? Well, remember Jesus talks about in the Gospels, you say what I say. Remember, they had sort of added to the Old Testament teaching with their oral law, with their tradition of the elders. Judaism today does not believe in what we believe in, sola scriptura. We believe Scripture alone is our ultimate authority. There's no higher authority than Scripture. The Roman Catholic Church does not believe that. They believe Scripture and the church or tradition. The Jewish Jews don't believe that either. They believe in tradition plus the Bible. And that tradition is captured in a written documents called the Talmud. The Talmud. So if you, if, you're a, if you want to be a rabbi, you study the Bible and you study the Talmud. The Talmud is the writing of these Jewish scholars and teachers and so forth. So forth. That Talmud is divided into a couple of parts. The first part is called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah began to be written down around year 200. So it's written down after the time of Christ, but it represents teaching going back like Gamaliel, you remember Gamaliel, we'll hear about him. He's mentioned in the, in, the, in the Mishnah. So when Jesus is talking about that tradition, the tradition of the scribes, by your tradition you circumvent the Old Testament law, he's talking about this oral tradition that the Jews had that they eventually wrote down in 200, beginning in 200, became what's called the Mishnah, became part of the Talmud and so forth. So the Jews had developed various laws, various intricate legalisms to keep you from breaking the law. For instance, uh, you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. The Sabbath begins sundown at Friday and ends sundown on Saturday. So what if you're a tailor? What if you make clothes for a living? 
Well, tailors commonly put needles in their in their uh, clothes. They have needles stuck in, you know, and because they're getting needles out and stuff. If you're a tailor, you're not allowed to put a needle into your clothes on on uh, on the day on on Friday that day before the Sabbath starts. You're not supposed to put. So that what they do is they put a hedge around the law. So if you put a, you might have a needle in your garments or some needles or pins or something. And then the Sabbath comes, and you're working because you've got these needles, your work, your instruments, you've got your tools on you, and you're walking around with these tools. You've broken the Sabbath. So they make all these laws, these very legalistic things, to put a hedge around the law so you won't break it. So that's what's happening here is. So you're not supposed to travel. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. You're supposed to rest. So they said, okay, you can only travel 2,000 cubits. How did they get this? The Mishnah limited travel to 2,000 cubits. This was calculated by interpreting Exodus 16.29. Bear in mind the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on six days he will give you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. That's all the old, That's all it says. Don't go out. What does that mean? <coughs> In light of Numbers 35.5, outside the town, measure 2,000 cubits on the east side, 2,000 cubits on the south, 2,000 on the west, 2,000 on the north, with the town in the center. They will have this as pasture land for the towns. So this is God giving, Moses giving instructions about where the city is, the town supposed to be. And so they said, okay, Moses said 2,000 cubits is the pasture land, so that's probably as far as you can go on the Sabbath day. So that became a regulation in the Mishnah, and even today, Jews don't travel very far on the Sabbath. They're not allowed to go, but two thousand. They're not supposed to go. Orthodox Jews are not supposed to go, but two thousand cubits on the Sabbath, or about three thousand feet. That's that's as far as they're supposed to go. So they're supposed to have a synagogue pretty close, almost in walking distance of where they're at, really, without so they won't break the Sabbath if they're really Orthodox. Not all Jews are that strict and so forth. So when they, verse 13, when they arrived from the Mount of Olives, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Now it'd be nice to know where that what that, that is. It says the room. People think that means the well-known room, and that could be a lot of different things. That could be the Passover room in Luke 22, 12. They have a Passover, remember, in the Gospels. And they, they find this room. Jesus tells them to go and get instructions about the room. So it could be, what, what is this room? Some say maybe it was the Passover room where they celebrate the, the Passover. There is a room where Christ appears to them after the resurrection. It could be the same room. We, we just don't know. Luke uh, twenty four thirty three talks about Christ appearing to them in a room. Well, is it that room? Is it the... Uh, Passover room. Some people say it's the house of Mary. Later on, uh, later on, we'll find that when Peter is put in prison and he is uh, set free by the angel, he goes out to the house of Mary. Remember in Acts twelve, and tries to get in, and the girl says, "Oh, she won't let him in." You know, says she can't believe it's Peter at the door knocking. Remember, that's the that's the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. So people speculate where that place may be if you the tra- tradition says uh, <coughs> tradition says uh, here's that picture of Jerusalem again we're looking from the south 
And this is that valley here, that central valley. This is the western part of the city over here. This was all walled in down here. Remember I said, we saw that map. This was all walled in. They think it's right here. That's what tradition says. So if you go there, you'll go to the Tomb of David in the upper room. You've been there, I'm sure, to the Tomb of David. So one floor is the Tomb of David and another floor is the upper room. David's certainly not buried there, but it might be the upper room. We don't know. Uh, it's, it's possible that could be the case. Uh, yeah, I would just start to show you this. It's on the western side here. So uh, it says here in verse 14, uh, it says, They arrived at the upper room, and he mentions the apostles who were there, the disciples of the Lord, the eleven. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, the son of James. They all joined together in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So I mentioned there who these uh, were. Uh, His brothers are mentioned here. It says, uh, with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Um, I mentioned the women here because it's interesting that Luke has a lot of emphasis on women. Women who were part of Jesus' ministry, who followed him, who uh, were disciples in a sense, not apostles, but were disciples. Luke has a special emphasis on that. If you, sometime when you look at the, the Gospel of Luke, you look at places, places like Luke chapter 8, Luke 8 verse 2 and 3, The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons came out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. That's Luke chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. And Luke mentions that on several times. Luke chapter 23, verse 49. Uh, Luke chapter 23, so, so forth. So there's there's emphasis here on the women who helped Jesus, helped support his ministry here. They were together with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And I mentioned who these were, James, Joseph, uh, Joseph or Joseph, the NIV says Joseph, Judas or Jude, Simon are mentioned. Now we know that these, these brothers, this is an interesting because we know that they were unbelievers during his earthly ministry. At least in the Gospels, it's pretty clear that these brothers of Jesus did not believe in him during his earthly ministry. Um, Mark chapter 3 and verse 21 mentions this. Mark chapter 3 and verse 21. Um, it says... Uh, When Jesus entered a house, then Jesus entered a house, and a crowd gathered. This is verse 20, Mark 3, 20. And so he and his disciples were not able to eat, verse 21. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. So his family thought, this guy's crazy. This guy's crazy. John chapter 7 
speaks very clearly on this. John chapter 7, verse 3, 3 through 5. John 7, 3. Jesus' brother said to him, this is uh, Jesus, this is at the Feast of Tabernacles. In fact, we saw that slide of the Western Wall. We saw the Jews coming for the Feast of Tabernacles there. Remember in the Old Testament, there were three times a year where every Jewish male was supposed to go to Jerusalem. Three feasts. Passover, Unleavened Bed, and Tabernacles. And so Jews still go there today to speak. So Jesus was getting ready to go to the Feast of Tabernacles. When the Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, verse 3, chapter 7 of John, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Chapter 7, verse 5. So this is very interesting, isn't it? That his own family, his own brothers, not his mother, I'm sure, but his brothers did not believe in him, but apparently they have come to believe in him. Uh, it's pretty clear that uh, he appeared to certain people we know from what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he appeared to James after his resurrection, his brother James. The writer of the book of James is Jesus' half-brother or Jesus' brother. But Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks about how the Lord appeared to him, you know, uh, uh, after. He says uh, he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Verse 5, and after that he appeared to Cephas and then to twelve, to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are falling, uh, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, 1 Corinthians 15, 7, then he appeared to James. This is James, uh, the Lord's brother, the writer of the book of James. So, apparently they came sometime after the resurrection or something to come to believe in Christ and their meeting here at this place, this room. And uh, I guess I got to get a cell. Uh, we're looking at the full complement of the apostles here. Uh, Matthias chosen to replace Judas Iscariot. Verse 16 of Acts chapter 1. Um, in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the field in their language Akeldama, that is the field of blood. Now, if you have an NIV, you notice they've got that in parentheses. There's no punctuation marks in the original manuscripts or anything. But what he's saying is that 
Peter stops speaking in verse, what they're saying is Peter stops speaking in verse 17. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. And then he picks up in verse 20. For said Peter, is written in the book of Psalms, that is that section I just read with the payment he received, that's kind of a parenthetical section of Luke the author explaining to us about Judas for those who are reading this, what happened to Judas. He bought a field, he fell headlong, his body burst open, all his intestines filled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, and they called this place uh, Keldamah, that is the field of blood. So as I say here, uh, Scripture had to be fulfilled concerning Judas. So Peter is saying the treachery of Judas was not an embarrassment to God's program, or we've been learning and discovering God are about the sovereign will of God that God is in control of all the events, and so Jesus' death was not a surprise to God. It was part of the program of God, even though Judas is responsible for betraying him. God's sovereign will includes the good and the bad that people do. God works it all together to carry out his purpose. And so Peter says that it was an embarrassment because Scripture predicted it. And he's going to cite a couple of passages here. Uh, uh, related to, Ju- to, to Judas. Uh, and as I say here, uh, Jesus has already related Judas to Psalm 41 9 and John 13, 18, and 19, with Jesus being a type of Adam, a type of David, and Judas a type of David's enemy. So in the Psalms, which are typical of Christ many times, remember David is the king. Uh, Jesus is the final ultimate king the line, the line of David and so many of those psalms have a messianic flavor to them they predict and type typologically what Jesus would be like and so forth and so uh, Peter is going to tell us here about these two passages that show the apostasy of Peter needed a replacement verse 20 he said it is written in the book of Psalms may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of these men who have been with us from the whole time the Lord was living among us. So Peter says here that there's a couple of passages here. He cites Psalm 69.25, Psalm 109.8, that demand a replacement for Judas here. May another take his place of leadership. Uh, so it's the defection of Judas that causes the need for a replacement. It's not his death. When the apostles die, they don't replace them. There's no, there's no apostles today. Once they die, they're off the scene. Later on, we're going to see uh, that James is killed in Acts chapter 12. And they don't replace James. He dies. He's the first apostle to be martyred. And that's it. So when the apostles die, that's the end of the apostles. But here, there is a need because Judas has defected. And there is a need for 12 apostles, apparently. Remember uh, Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says that the apostles, the 12 apostles, Matthew 19, 28, the 12 apostles will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We know that's not Judas. Judas was an unbeliever, even though he was chosen to be an apostle. He's not the one. We assume it's this 
Matthias. We'll talk about that uh, here next time. But uh, So uh, they need another apostle. Now my guess is Jesus gave instructions about this. Remember we read back there in Acts chapter 1 where it says uh, he presented to them, he gave proofs, he gave them various commands and so forth. So the Lord is meeting with them and he's giving them instructions, I think, to remain in Jerusalem, wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And my guess is he probably gave them instructions about replacing Judas, would be my guess, and probably how it was to be done. Now, that, I know the Bible doesn't say that, but I think it's a good bet. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> it's a good bet. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's probable that... Uh, Jesus probably gave uh, instructions to them about the fact that they need my guess is Peter just didn't think this up on his own you know necessarily probably had instructions probably had instructions from Christ and so forth but the Old Testament predicted this that someone would betray Jesus and another would take his place and so they're going to choose another to take his place now there's some controversy as we'll see next week about did they choose the right person? Because some have said no. The Apostle Paul is that 12th Apostle, and they kind of made a mistake here. They have boo-boo here, you know. And it, and it's and it's and you can see by the way they did it, casting these lots is not the necessarily the best way to do this kind of thing. So we'll have to wait till next week and we'll talk about that. This morning we close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our time together this evening. Thank you for the word of God and give us understanding in all these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.